Well, good morning. You can be seated, unless you'd like to stand. That's fine. It's so good to be back. Uh, I was gone for five weeks, uh, and uh, people would ask while you're away, like, what do you miss the most? And my answer was always the same. It was my family, my wife, and my daughter, and not that those are two separate things. They are my family, and then my church family, uh, you. It's so good to see you uh, and to be with you again. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. That theme of light and dark is one that is constantly being set before us. And during this season of Advent, in the passage that we just read, that's no different, that there's a darkness in this world called sin, and against that darkness, the hope of the gospel and the Lord Jesus shines brightly before it. For that reason, we're going to take a break from Exodus over the next four weeks through the Advent season to examine very closely the promise that has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus as we find it in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. So we're going to spend four weeks on one verse. If you do Bible memorization, that should make that a little easier. You get a break during December. This one word, this snippet, this prophecy about one Lord, one Savior. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of all the scripture read around this time of year, this one's probably ranks among the most well-known, and for good reason. Where we live in the northern hemisphere, these are the darkest days. The temperature is the coldest. Things outside are dying. We long for the sun's light and warmth, but in the darkness, there's a bit of joy coming for us on December 5th, at least if you like getting Christmas presents, right? There's this contrast of darkness and then all of a sudden, the joy of a gift. In Isaiah 9, 6 was uttered during a time of darkness, and it is a prophecy about a gift, true light from God himself. It comes at a time that was really pretty bleak in Israel's history. It's about the middle of the 8th century BC, and uh, despite their best efforts, things are not going very well for Israel. Well, perhaps in spite of their best efforts, things are not going very well for Israel. Uh, they are not bearing God's name very well, something we learned about last week. They are called pl proud plotters uh, against God's will. They're indifferent and calloused about injustices that are happening in their society, so much so that they are called oppressors. And as a result, and perhaps a little close to home for us in this culture, their culture was a mixture of paranoia and mistrust, of empty talk, of uh, empty words with no backing, of worry and anxiety, and lack of trusting in the Lord. One translator writes and translates in the words from Isaiah 8, 21 through 22, this way, setting the scene. It says, frustrated and famished, they try one thing after another. When nothing works out, they get angry, 
cursing first this God and then that one, looking this way and that up and down and sideways and seeing nothing, a blank wall, an empty hole. They end up in the dark with nothing. I think if this was to be said about our culture today, perhaps, these would be the words, frustrated and starved. They looked from one politician and influencer and celebrity and social movement to another and another and another. And when nothing ends up changing, they take their anger out on one another, on social media with hashtags, influencers boycotted, celebrities canceled, families divided, friendships lost. But it yields nothing, absolutely nothing. A blank wall, an empty hole, they end up in the dark with nothing. Israel needed a counselor. We need a counselor. But the very last thing that Israel wanted counsel from was God's word. The very last person they wanted counsel from was the one whose name they were supposed to be bearing well. And so soon they would reap what they had sown. Knocking on Israel's doorstep was a foreign army who would come and conquer them. But as bleak as that sounds, piercing through that darkness comes a set of promises hints of hope just beyond the horizon. And it actually begins not in chapter 9, but in verse, or chapter 7, verse 14. This is another very famous verse that we're probably familiar with. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And this is a beautiful promise because not only is it from God himself, but it is of God himself. The promise is not just being issued from God. The promise is God. That's what Emmanuel means. God with us. Emmanuel, God, would come to rescue his people once for all. God himself would come and rule over his people. God himself would do this thing. This is what it means that the virgin's son would be of God that he would be God. We can lean into John's language at the beginning of his gospel, which we studied previous to Exodus, that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, so he's separate, but the Word was God, so he is God. And the Word became flesh, says verse 14, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the, of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John tells us that God the Son when he would arrive from the Father, would be full of grace and truth. And this fullness of grace and fullness of truth is exactly, it's precisely the promise that is beginning to be made to Israel through Isaiah. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I want us to notice two things here before we begin an in-depth study of those titles, those names of Emmanuel. First, how the child comes. How will the child come? It says that he will be born. That's pretty intuitive, right? I mean, what child has not been born? Uh, and that's a complicated thought, so put a pin in it, we'll come back to it later. Um, but that's a really comforting thing to know because if the Messiah, if the promise that we're receiving from God in, in, in Isaiah 9 is of God and a child's being born, what does that say about God? He's coming to us to walk in the human experience, to live like we live, to live where we live. What other God would do that? Why would they want to do that? So that's a strange thing to hear if you're living in the 8th century. 
in Israel. Another thing is uh, how the child comes. He's given. He's a gift. So it's something we ought to, we need to receive. His very presence among us is not deserved. It's a gracious, merciful gift. I think John Calvin, the reformer, rightly noted that the giving of the Son is, he says these words, one of the chief articles of our faith. That this prophecy is one of the columns of what it means to be a Christian. That God gifted the world his son. Second, I want us to notice who this child is. Not merely what he does, not merely the actions that he's going to take, but how he does it, how he fulfills those titles. He's not just a counselor. He's not going to be called just counselor. He's not going to be called just father. He's not going to be called just prince. Because if you think about it, just because you're a counselor doesn't necessarily mean you're a good one. And just because you're a father doesn't necessarily mean you love your children. And just because you're a prince doesn't necessarily mean you're going to bring peace. You might bring war. So if the quality of this gift, this child coming to us, is not good, his presence might actually mean things are getting worse. So it's important to not only understand the Messiah's titles, but the character behind that person fulfilling these titles. This is really where we're going to hang out for the next four weeks. Double-clicking, investigating, examining each one of these titles one by one to not only learn more about the character behind Christ, but to celebrate him during the Advent season. And the first one we're going to look at is how this gift of God, who is God himself, would come to counsel us, but counsel us wonderfully. But before we jump into it, a little preface on Bible interpretations. If you're really interested in Bible interpretation, perhaps you read your own commentaries. There's actually a debate among biblical scholars on whether or not we could even ascribe this prophecy to Jesus. Can we even call him our wonderful counselor? Isn't it talking about somebody else in the immediate text? There's a guy named Hezekiah that was living around this time. And a lot of Bible scholars would say, actually, all of the nice things we say about Jesus are true, but these words specifically were reserved for Hezekiah, and we can't really apply them to Jesus. They have to be applied to Hezekiah. Because think about it, Hezekiah was a pretty great guy. And the Bible really praises what the Lord accomplished through him. He was faithful to God. He enacted religious reforms that got rid of uh, idols all throughout Israel. He got rid of idols that were in the temple and then brought people back to true and faithful worship of Yahweh. And he celebrated with words in 2 Kings, uh, the 18th chapter, that uh, are not really written about very many people at all. He, being Hezekiah, trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. So they'd say, see, this passage, this Isaiah 9, chapter 6, is not talking about Jesus. It's talking about Hezekiah. But there's some problems with that. I think first, the wording is strange to describe the obvious. This is a prophecy that's meant to bear weight on the hearts of the ears who hear it. We're meant to be prepared to receive it and to be 
awe-inspired by it. It's as if the prophecy is saying, are you seated? Are you in your chairs? Great, because I have something amazing to tell you. Are you ready? A child will be born. Okay, which child's not? <laughs> it's, what's the big deal, right? Of course children are born. I don't know if you knew that's how it works. And funny enough, Hezekiah was actually already born when this prophecy was made. I think it was about nine or 10 years old, if I can math correctly. So it has to be about a future child. And there's a strangeness about this child, something peculiar, not out of the ordinary. The next piece here we're given is a son is given. Well, again, that's not very impressive to Israel at this time if it's talking about a mere man, because how many men up until this point have been given to Israel in service to her? Many, many men. This language expects a little bit of strangeness in the birth of a child, in the giving of a child. In other words, who wouldn't expect Hezekiah to be born and given? Nobody, right? But who would expect God to be born and for God to be given? I think most obviously, we have to ask the question, would Hezekiah himself with the kind of fear that he had of God and reverence in his own heart toward him, tolerate the titles that would be thrust upon him if this prophecy is directly about him. Here you have a man who rids Israel of all idolatry so that they would point to the one true God, they would orient their hearts and their worships to the one true God, and then in response, he himself is called what? Mighty God? Do you think, Israel, do you think Hezekiah is going to take that title? No, of course not. So while Hezekiah may model the end of this prophecy, while he may model what these titles mean, he is not the end of the meaning themselves. Instead, we have to look at him as a providential pattern, that there is somebody like Hezekiah that is coming, a future kingly leader. We look past him towards the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, our wonderful counselor. And that's where I want to focus on, this one, this first one, Wonderful Counselor. And to do so, we really need to understand these two words, right? Wonderful and counsel. Let's go with the first word, wonderful. What does wonderful mean? What does wonder mean? I think we need to, uh, like, retrieve a biblical understanding of both of these words. Because, like, what pops into your mind when I say the word wonder? You don't have to say it out loud, but... I did at my desk. Here are my four answers. The first one was, because it's Christmas time, it's a wonderful life. Yeah, great movie, right? Jimmy Stewart's one of the best actors of all time. That's not my opinion, it's just a fact. <laughs> I love It's a Wonderful Life. It's, uh, you know, beauty and meaning in the mundane, unexpected twists and turns of life ought to give us meaning and we should be reverent for the gift of life that has been given to us. Uh, what a great movie. The other one, because, you know, I was a kid born in the mid-80s, Wonder Woman, right? So you don't know Wonder Woman? That's uh, Diana Prince's side gig. That's what she does when she's not working at museums. So uh, strength, right? Um, another one that popped into my head was The Wonder Years, which then made me wonder, like, where's Fred Savage been <laughs> this whole time, right? I, I don't know. Uh, and then the last one I thought of was It's a Wonderful Life by Louis Armstrong. Trees of Green and Red Roses, too. 
Uh, and then I was starting to think to myself, like, man, this, how our culture defines wonder is really interesting because at least maybe you thought of one or two of those, maybe all four, you're weird like me. What do they have in common with each other? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing, really. So wonder for us in our culture means uh, some kind of admirable gratification. Uh, wonder woman means power or strength. Um, charming, I guess for one or years, cheerful. This is not necessarily the case with the Hebrew concept of wonderful or wonder, Pele is the Hebrew word. It means to marvel or to admire at an unexpected thing. That's that saying, nobody likes surprises. This concept challenges that and says, no, a wonder is an unexpected surprise that you actually like. And uh, the first time we see this word, is actually uh, one we're, we're already familiar with because it's in Exodus chapter 15. Immediately after, the Israelites go through the Red Sea, the song of Moses and Miriam, one of the lyrics goes like this. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders, right? Israel's jaw had dropped to the floor and they had to pick it up to walk through the dry ground in between the walls of water and the Red Sea. And this is wonder, to marvel at an unexpected surprise that you really, really like. Biblical wonder is that feeling of excitement from a strange source. It should leave you astonished. I think that's different than how our culture defines wonder. Like, as good as the wonder years were, like, I never had to pick my jaw <laughs> after watching an episode, right? So, no offense, Fred Savage, because I know he listens. It, if, if that's the biblical Old Testament um, concept of wonderful, then who do you suppose the Old Testament applies wonderful or wondrous to? It shouldn't surprise you. We kind of just read it. Wonderfulness in the Old Testament is something attributed to God, and it's something that he does not share with anyone. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? It's a rhetorical question that's being asked. No one in the audience was like, I think Ra? No. The implicit answer is no one is like God. And they're saying that because they just watched God beat up all the other gods in Egypt, right? And this is important, again, because the prophecy is not merely about a child, but God himself, a child who is also God, the Son of God, who does not share his wonder with anyone. And this is important because, once again, in a recurring theme all throughout Scripture that we ought to always keep at the forefront, that when it comes to salvation, God is the primary actor. We saw it in Exodus we see it here in this promise that when it comes to redemption, when it comes to salvation, God is the primary actor. God is salvation's source and its end. God is salvation's power and provision. God is salvation's object and action so that all glory and honor and praise terminate on the wonderful work of the Trinity the will of the Father to save, the unique creative event of the Holy Spirit in a virgin's womb, and the Son, the wonderful work of God, who is the work, wonder-working God himself, Emmanuel. You are the God who works wonders, says the psalmist 
In Psalm 77, 14, you have made known your might among the peoples. And if that's the case, then the only way we could ever hope to experience true wonder is in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of the promised child to come. And we want wonder. We do our hearts yearn for wonder. The world offers all sorts of types of wonders, doesn't it? If we didn't want wonder, the world wouldn't be filled with imitations of wonder. Wonders of innovation or technology or creation. Wonders of information and data and news. Uh, the wonders of new relationships being embraced by friends. But all of those are shadows and pale in comparison to the wonders of God, to the creativity of God's redemptive plan, to the wonderful news of his gospel, to the eternal relationship and the fullness of worship that we receive in Christ and because of him and for him. Wonder is what one of the chief things the world wants. It wants to be surprised in a good way. And whether we know it or not, whether we're religious or not, whether you're an atheist or agnostic, it doesn't matter. We all search for wonder in a fundamentally religious way, in a fundamentally spiritual way. Louis Armstrong actually tips his cards a bit to this in that song. I see blue skies and clouds of white. What is he saying in this moment besides the obvious? I see blue clouds of skies, er, I'm sorry, I see skies of blue and clouds of white. What's he looking at? Is it creation? And from looking at creation, he's drawing wonder. Then he says, the bright, blessed day, the dark, sacred night. Those are biblical terms. Those are spiritual terms. He's following the Apostle Paul's observation that when we contemplate creation, we sense wonder. And it leads us to one of two places, right worship of God or rejection of worship of God and into idolatry, denying him. So we can't escape it no matter who we are. There is a natural longing in our hearts for wonder, for a spiritual surprise that causes us to stand back in awe. And yet the world often leaves us so unimpressed and unsurprised and disappointed because the world is not a wonderful place in its present fallen state. So I have to disagree with Louis Armstrong. It's not a wonderful world. It was, and there's residue of wonder, and there are hints of the wonder that was, and God gifts us with glimpses of wonder. If you got a child's laugh, a friend's hug, the things that Louis picks up on in his song. But all in all, this world is not wonderful. And that's a message that's trying to be communicated in Isaiah to show just how black with sin the world has become so that the brightness of the gospel would shine forth. I mean, what's wonderful about COVID? What's wonderful about broken homes? or failed or failing marriages, or immorality, or pain, or poverty, or injustice. What's wonderful about sin? Nothing. That's why this promise of a wonderful counselor is so wonderful. It wouldn't be if the world already was. 
So strange yet inspiring, unexpected but admirable. God, who comes to us as a child, would bear a message of hope through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. That's wonderful. You see, wonderfulness communicates something about Christ's character. The quality of his counsel is wonderful, unexpected, surprising, but putting us in a position of awe because it's directly sourced from God himself. Jesus doesn't come as a mere prophet to say, this is what God told me to tell you. He says, I am God and speaks. He is our wonderful counselor. Let's look at that second word. This is a title, counselor, position. And here too, I think we need to revisit the word just to make sure we don't assume we know kind of what the Bible is describing when it says counselor. Like what do you think when I say the word counselor? Like the first thing, I don't know why, it's probably because I got in trouble a lot, was guidance counselor. Like that was the first thing that popped into my mind. And, you know, getting into shenanigans at school and having to talk to them on Saturday when you're supposed to be playing. Um, that's probably just me. There are other types of counselors too. Uh, and the best counselors are those whose empathy and skill are buttressed and enlivened by scripture. Biblical counseling, for example, is very helpful. For the most part, I think counselors in our imagination, and maybe it's just me, are relegated to either discipline or therapy. When you think of counseling, those are the two main things that we think of. But in thinking about counsel and counseling like that, I actually think it does modern-day counseling a disservice, but it also puts a kind of skewed portrait back on an ancient concept. So who are counselors in the Old Testament? Uh, first, counselors were people who bring a message or a word. This is one of the themes I saw develop all throughout, uh, up until Isaiah. Uh, is, what is Isaiah saying? What is God saying through Isaiah when he says counselor? And any time you see a counselor or you see counseling, in the Old Testament up until this point, there's always a message, there's always a word. And typically it is to reveal a plan or a purpose. So a counselor in the Old Testament is somebody who stands off, watches, doesn't say much, and then in their wisdom comes to a person and says, I have a plan, here's that plan. It was less about listening and more about speaking. And so that kind of is an inverse of what we would typically think of a counselor today, mainly listening and, and less speaking. But you see a lot of speaking of counselors in the Old Testament. A counselor brought a word. And oftentimes, and this is really cool, and I didn't know this until preparing for this sermon, but the word that a counselor brings in the Old Testament was meant to alleviate a burden. So you received counsel from somebody who saw that you were bearing a burden that was too much and gave you a word of advice or a command to be alleviated from that burden, whether it's a difficult decision to make, whether it's a stressful situation, whether it's some kind of depressive state. And in some ways, I think that's familiar to our concept of counseling today. But second, counselors were also people who commanded a work. So they didn't just give a word, but they were also somebody who commanded something. And conveniently for us, we already have an example of this. And Jethro, do you remember Jethro's uh, story with Moses? After the Exodus, Jethro is Moses' father-in-law, and Moses is just exhausting himself day after day, 
from sunrise to sunset, adjudicating and judging everybody's problems. And Jethro notices that his son-in-law cannot keep this up. The burden that he was bearing was too heavy. He says to Moses, the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. And so in Exodus 18, 19, Jethro says to Moses, modeling for us an Old Testament counselor, now obey my voice. So this is a command. Obey my voice. I will give you advice. There's the word, the work, listen up, the word, the advice. And this is really important. And God be with you. This is not my opinion. I am framing this within godly wisdom. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. God told you to do it. You're supposed to do this. But here's the wisdom. Look for men who are able from all people, men who fear God. Again, framing it in biblical wisdom, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. So there's the word and the work, the advice framed in godly wisdom. And Moses followed that advice, and guess what? His burden was alleviated. His burden was lifted. So here's an important thing to know when we're thinking about a counselor in the Old Testament. Counsel is a word and work that alleviates a burden. And so a counselor is somebody who brings a word or brings a command with the aim of reducing the burden that is on the person they're talking to. This is very important, the word and the work to alleviate burden. And we see it again with Jethro, bring their case to God. Let God take it. He's strong to bear Does all this sound familiar? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You are bearing a burden you were never meant to carry. Christ is our wonderful counselor. He gives us a word, come. He gives us a work. Give your burden to me. And he takes our burdens onto himself so that we may find rest and alleviates that pressure. This is what it means that Christ is our wonderful counselor. He has come so that we may give. He was given so that he would take. God himself has counseled us to give our burdens to him to put our sin on him, to give him our anxiety, our worries, our fears, our darkest secrets, because we cannot bear them on our own. Our hope then is external from us because Emmanuel, God with us, is not whatever it would be, God in us. (laughs) Although the Holy Spirit dwells within us, he too is an external source, foreign to us. Our hope comes from outside ourselves. Our hope comes before, not after our efforts. Our hope originates outside, not inside ourselves. And so our hope has nothing to do with us and everything to do with God. That is wonderful counsel from the wonderful counselor. And it's something that we need to be reminded of constantly because our culture is telling us the exact opposite. We're constantly being fed a lie that we are our own source of power, 
And we are our own source of comfort. We are our own burden alleviators. I don't know if that's a word. Don't check it. I was reminded of this uh, watching the Thanksgiving Day parade and all the fun commercials in between. And uh, there was a really deep philosophical, spiritual message in one of the commercials that read, that read like this verbatim. Our strength, purpose, and power starts from within. Our purpose, strength, and power starts from within. The philosopher, Jennifer Aniston. <laughs> the commercial, a protein powder mix <laughs> was being advertised. When I say we're constantly being fed that lie, I mean it. Even when your guard is down watching, you know, turkey and Snoopy floats, and Jennifer Aniston comes on trying to sell you this protein powder mix, that's when you're told your counsel comes from within. We absorb by osmosis our culture's hymns and songs and spiritual sermons. And one of its most favorite tunes is this. You are wonderful. You are your best source of wisdom. Your inner being can bear that burden. So look inward, not up. And we're so prone to believe this lie, not because it's crafty, not because it's partly true, it's not, but because we want to believe it, we want to believe what Jennifer Aniston in the protein mix powder commercial says about us is true. We're heroes of our own story. We are the wonderful ones. We're our best counselors. But if there's one thing scripture is clear about, especially here, is we are not, nor can we be those things. Because our perspective is limited, our opinion is skewed, our desires are infected with the consequences of sin. And in our own self-centered therapeutic culture, we're constantly told to look for hope and for counsel and wisdom within. But scripture says it's the exact opposite. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. You need the hope from the outside. He is a gift to our hearts in our minds and our souls. He is our wonderful counsel from God. He is our wonderful counselor, God, Emmanuel. He has come to speak to you. We don't listen for God's word from him. We listen to God's word from him. And God has come to listen to you, to hear your groans. That's why, that's what moved God to rescue Israel from Egypt in the first place, wasn't it? I have heard the groanings of my people, and I am done. I will rescue them. In the incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus lived the human experience. He was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. He knows what it's like to lose loved ones. Have you ever cried at a funeral? Jesus has too when his friend Lazarus died. Like, he knows what life is like, and he listens to your cries. And in response to those cries, he issues an invitation through wonderful counsel, come, I will give you rest. And I love this because we today are well past both the promise of the Son of God coming and the coming of the Son of God in his first advent. And we are anticipating his second advent, his second coming, which means we live in a time between two advents. 
The first was when the wonderful counselor came, and the second when the wonderful counselor will come again. To borrow some biblical language, we live in between Emmanuel and Maranatha. We live in between God with us and Lord come quickly. So from where do we receive our counsel now? Well, the answer is still the same, Jesus. We listen to him in his gospels. We learn about him in the word of God. And I, I mean, I, I pick that language very particularly. We listen to Christ in the word. We don't listen for him in the word. It's subtle, it's nuanced, but it's really important. And it was something, over the past five weeks, I had the opportunities to, to go and sit under different preaching from representatives from different denominations. And uh, it's always neat to, to be able to like hear sermons from somebody else from a different denomination. Um, but there was this theme that I kept seeing over and over and over again, week after week after week. But the language that was being used was, they would hold up scripture and they would say, listen for God's word. And I thought to myself, well, that's dangerous, isn't it? Because if you're only listening for God's word, you're not listening to God's word, then you're putting yourself above it as an adjudicator of its interpretation. So by the time you have a burden that you can no longer bear and Jesus says, come to me, and you're listening for his invitation, you hear him say, come to me, you'll say, yeah, but. But if you listen to him and he says, come to me, you'll say what? Yes, Lord. Listen to God's word. Don't listen for it. Listen to God's word. Listen to Christ and his gospels. Another source from which we receive counsel today is the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in John 14, 26, but the helper, the King James says, the comforter. Another legitimate translation is, guess what? The counselor. The Holy Spirit. Whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So what is the role of the Spirit, our helper? It's to remind us of and magnify the wonderful counselor. So listen to the Spirit. And then finally, and this one's going to make us nervous, I think an important source of wonderful counsel that we get is from the saints, the people to your left and to your right, in front and behind you. Remember Jethro, what did he do? He gave wonderful counsel. He was a good counselor to Moses. He helped alleviate Moses' burdens. That's what a good counselor in a community of saints does. This is what Paul means in Galatians 6, chapter 3, when he's closing his letter to the church of Galatia, giving them advice, giving them counsel. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bearing one another's burdens, as we see, is part and parcel of biblical counseling, alleviating that burden. So how can we bear burdens without knowing the burden bearers? How can we bear burdens without knowing the burdens that our neighbors carry? I think we need to emulate the wonderful counselor, not to replace him, but to emulate him by being a lowercase c counselor to the saints around us. And ask ourselves questions. Do we listen to one another to know their burdens, or do we simply just prefer to tell people what to do? Or the, or the exact opposite. Uh, we prefer not to speak up at all. Like, who am I to tell that person? Or do we empathize with one another? Or are we constantly aloof or angry with our neighbors? I want to speak uh, frankly, specifically about our church, because being away for that amount of time kind of gives you like a third-person perspective of yourself and, and those around you. And 
those types of things. I think being away and coming back, I sense that there are two things happening simultaneously at this moment in our church. On the one hand, there are a lot of burdens being born. There's been a lot of loss. There's a lot of pressure and stress, specifically and especially on relationships, friendships, marriages. So there's a lot, we're, we're bearing a lot of burdens as a congregation. But then on the other hand, I feel like there's a lot of relational distance growing uh, f- between us as well. And I worry that the further a congregation is from one another relationally, then the more that burden bearing falls to individuals in a select few. That what Paul meant and what we see in the example of Moses through Jethro's counsel was that burdens were meant to be borne across uh, the whole body of people. So Paul wasn't addressing himself when he counseled the church in Galatia to bear one another's burdens. He wasn't saying, well, I'm the pastor, I'm the elder, I'm the apostle, I'm the professional, so bring all your burdens to me and I'll bear them. No, he's saying we are all little C counselors to give each other wonderful counsel through the Holy Spirit to remind us of our wonderful counselor, Jesus, and to bear one another's burdens and fulfill his law of love. He's speaking to the people which means you are a counselor meant to emulate the capital C wonderful counselor. Not only do you need counsel, not only do I need counsel, but you are a counsel giver. We all need our wonderful counselor to pierce through the darkness of sin and issue that call, come to me, I will give you rest. Are you reminded of that call frequently? Do you remind people of that call frequently. Mars, let's be a people whose wonderful counselor is heard and obeyed and who rest in him to have our burdens alleviated to his glory of his name. Amen. Father, we thank you so much that you have given us your word, that you have given us your counsel through your son and through your spirit. Father, in a world that is so fallen and broken, We thank you that your son pierced through darkness as dawning light to redeem us, to rescue us, to alleviate for us the burden of sin, to take it upon himself, die and rise again. Father, we ask that your spirit would be with us as we give one another counsel as we seek, as Paul says, to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill your son's law. Let us be always reminded of what good, wonderful counsel does. It reminds us of the word and work of your son. We love you. And it's in his precious name that we pray.